Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 11 through to 34, which can be found on page 1096 of your pew Bibles. It's Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 34. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her, from her, for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept their practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a, such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. They immediately, then immediately, he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, bonjour, ni hao, salam, anyang hatheo. 
wherever you come from, whatever the language is you speak at home, we are glad that you are in the house of God with us. Welcome. Would you pray with me as we uh, reflect on God's word? Father, we thank you for this life-giving word, this, this beautiful story that we read of in Acts. It's our story. And we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to make us attentive to what it is you would like to speak to us today. Thank you that whatever you have to say, God, it is for good. It is to bless, to build up, to bring us more life than we ever knew. Thank you that is your intent, and so we rely on that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to each and every one of you. My name is Phil Reinders. I'm one of the staff here at Knox. And if you're relatively new to Knox, we have been working through a teaching series in the book of Acts. Acts is sort of part of a two-volume series. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and then the book of Acts come together. And it's written by um, a medically trained doctor named Luke, who is writing to someone named Theophilus. Theophilus most people believe is a Roman official, someone in power, and he is either a new Christian or um, a non-Christian investigating the Christian faith. And Luke's goal is to instruct Theophilus to explain all about who Jesus is and what happened through the church. And Luke states his purpose pretty plainly at the very beginning. He says this, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account. So Luke is writing an orderly, researched, investigative account into the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He's gone to the eyewitnesses, he's interviewed them, he's written this account into the life of Jesus, which means we can trust this. This is a trustworthy account. This is not legend he's spinning here. It's not fabrication. It's, it's a careful historical investigation into Jesus, into the movement that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus gave birth to. And last week, and then today, and then next week, what we're going to be doing is we're connecting our church's vision with the book of Acts. Our vision as a church, our mission, our identity statement is pretty simple. It's three phrases. It is following Jesus, loving the city, and serving the world. We are a community of faith centered in on Jesus Christ because we believe He is who He says He is. We believe He's the Son of God, the wisdom of the world, and so we follow Him. We give ourselves fully to who He is, learning and living His way. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to explore the second of those phrases. Last week, we looked at following Jesus. This week, loving the city. Think of that phrase, loving the city. It's an affection word, right? Love. It means we are called to develop this, this heart disposition, this heart connection to the city, to have an affection for it, an appreciation for it. It means finding the good the city has to offer, looking for God in the city and finding Him. It means also that our hearts break for the city too, because we love it, because we see that it's a broken place. This week, we've had a homeless friend here at Knox. He's been sleeping on one of our benches, and we're glad that he can find a relatively safe space in the city for a night's rest. But we also have a daycare. And so every morning we have to go and we have to tell him, 
Quincy, it's time to get up. You got to go. We got a daycare here. Um, and so we've learned that he likes his coffee, cream and sugar, not black. Tell him what time it is, offer him a cup of coffee, and he's off for the day. But we grieve the realities of homelessness. It's part of the brokenness of the city, and we wonder how, how can the hope and the compassion and the justice of God come to bear here? So we, we love the beauty of the city, and our hearts are broken for all that's wrong in the city. So why would we do that? Why would we attach our hearts to the city? Why are we called to love? We are called to love the city pure and simply because God loves the city. God has attached his heart to the city. He has bound himself up with the welfare of the city. It is God's invention, the city, did you know that? And it is his intention as well. The Bible begins in a garden. You know where it ends up? A city. The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven where God and his people will live together forever. A holy city. And a fascinating aspect about the book of Acts is how utterly urban its nature is. Um, Christianity spread by the direction of God through cities. God is an urban strategist of sorts. He sent his leaders exclusively to live and minister in major cities. And this is just the repeated pattern you see again and again in the book of Acts. And in fact, in chapter 16, which we read this morning, the part we didn't read says this, Paul had a vision. And in that vision, he heard a man from Macedonia, a region, calling, saying, come to Macedonia and preach the gospel. And so what do we read? That they traveled to Philippi. Why? Because it was a leading city in the area of Macedonia. So we see Paul, he wanted to reach Macedonia, and so what does he do? He goes to the biggest city in the region. We're called to love the city because they are significant in terms of their influence, their impact, in terms of how they shape society. In our city is concentrated so much cultural influence and an influence that really spreads across the region, across the nation. And interestingly enough, cities are also places that draw so many different people. The world comes to cities. People from across the globe are streaming to our streets here in Toronto so that when you walk the streets of Toronto, you're getting a tour of the globe. And we see all that as, as this providential move of God. Because when you consider the flow of people and information and connections and influence that happens in the city through to the rest of the world, you realize that when you reach the city, you touch the globe. And so we understand the city of Toronto as, as a critical focus of our mission here as we join God in his mission to renew the world. But if I had to boil it down even further, why is it that we are called to love the city? It's simply this. Because there are so many beautiful human creations who live in the city. I learned from uh, a pastor, Bill Crispin, who says that God loves the city so much because there is more image of God per square inch in the city than in any other place. I like that way of phrasing. There is more image of God per square inch in the city than any other place. God looks at the city and his heart melts because it is crammed with the most beautiful thing there is, people who carry his image, people that he has his tied, attached his heart to. And in this 
passage we read this morning, we get three interesting vignettes, three pictures, portraits of the people that God loves, people that you'll find in any city, people you'll certainly find here in Toronto. And we see how the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's love for the world, is the power to meet the needs of the city. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power to address the intellectual, the spiritual, the social needs of the city. And in each of these vignettes, we capture a glimpse of how Christianity does that, how it reaches vastly different people, and how it meets all of the needs of those city dwellers, providing the hope, the healing that our city craves. So Paul and his traveling companions, they go to Philippi, which is a, this leading city of Macedonia, a major Roman colony. And while there, first day there, first Sunday there, they go look for people of faith, God-fears. And so they go, go look for a place of prayer. And this is where they meet the first person we're going to encounter today, Lydia. Lydia, we're told, is a, is a dealer in purple cloth, which means she's a merchant who works in high fashion. She is dealing with fine fabrics that all the wealthy want, and so Lydia is a businesswoman. She is a good businesswoman, too. She is working at the top end of her fashion market. She is an independent woman of considerable means. Later on, we learn she's got her own house, her own dwelling, a substantial one. We also know this about Lydia. Is she's a spiritual person. She's a religious person. She's seeking she is called in this passage a worshiper of God. Now, that's almost a technical term for referring to someone who is a Gentile, not a Jewish person, a Gentile who's reading the Hebrew Bible. She has this notion of God. She's trying to figure out who God is, trying to seek God, trying to please God, and she's doing so by, by looking into the God of the Bible. And her need, her need is to understand God, to have a, have a bigger picture of these spiritual inclinations where they're leading her to. And she needs to see and experience the beauty of the gospel. And the gospel comes to her through something very ordinary, through teaching, through proclamation of the gospel. It comes through rational discourse. We're told here that she was hearing. It's sort of an ongoing. So there's several times she was listening to the Apostle Paul, likely on different occasions, engaging with him, having discussions with him. And we read that as she was hearing him, the Lord opened her heart to respond. That word respond means to, to almost be compelled. She was attracted. She was captured by something of the goodness, the beauty of what was communicated in this rational discourse. She got it. The penny dropped. She saw the, the beauty of the gospel. All of a sudden, her life made sense in, in line with what she was given to. And so, so she moved from general religion and spirituality to the gospel. She needed the gospel. The gospel is not about what we do for God, you know, about how we pray and are spiritual. It is about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And she saw how beautifully, radically different the gospel was. Paul is showing Lydia that God, through Jesus Christ, completely loves, completely blesses her without her having done a thing. In fact, without her, with her having done all sorts of rotten, horrible things, and no matter what she's done, she's been communicated, she is loved. She is God's cherished child. 
that is a powerful dynamic. And through that, God opened her heart. And you can almost put the words in Lydia's mouth. You can almost, you almost see her saying, oh man, I want that. Like, I want Jesus. That Whatever you're selling, I want it. Because the whole Bible that she was reading made sense now. Her whole life made sense. She was compelled. She's saying, this is the most beautiful thing I've seen. And she becomes a Christian. And what happens, the impact in her, is she's a changed woman. She opens her home, we read. She compels Paul and Silas to come, stay in my house. You're going to be with me. You're going to live in my home. And what we see the Spirit doing is leading her out to live this life of Jesus now in the economic order that brought her her wealth and her status. There's a profound generosity that is flowing out of her, a new hospitality as she takes her means, her resources, and puts them into service of others beautiful picture of the power of the gospel to change someone. And you know this city, Toronto, is filled with Lydia's all around. Successful, smart, spiritual people. Elites, maybe. Well put together people who who seem to have it all together. But in their quieter moments are asking, is that all there is? There's got to be something more. They're seeking and they're asking and they're exploring and the gospel has the power to meet their needs. Jesus Christ is both intellectually credible and and emotionally compelling. The good news of Jesus Christ is this beautiful story that makes sense of our lives and the world as we know it. That's part of the power of the gospel. But is it just for Lydia's of the world? Hardly. Look at all the different people we meet. This next person that we meet in this story is is probably the exact opposite end of the spectrum. So you have Lydia, who's wealthy, who's sort of an elite person, and now Paul and Silas encounter a young slave, a young female slave. She is powerless, she's exploited, and doubly so, because she's not only possessed by a spirit, but she's also being used by her handlers, by her owners. She's someone who's spiritually bound and, and socially oppressed. And she, she's like the picture of someone without a face, without an identity. We don't even know her name. And again, you don't have to live long in the city of Toronto to know people just like her. Because part of the brokenness of the city is all the poor and oppressed. All those who are... Who are whose lives are gripped in the power of something that just strips them of their dignity. You can think of this slave girl as maybe an undocumented worker here in the city of Toronto with no status, invisible, so vulnerable, no access to health care or legal rights. Or maybe you can think of this, this slave girl as a teenage drug-addicted prostitute working one of the street corners under the watchful eye of her owner, her pimp. How does the gospel come into their life? How does the gospel impact people like that who live in this city? You know what she didn't need? She didn't need a sermon, which is good for a preacher like me to know. The gospel comes in all sorts of different ways. It's a good, humbling thing. She didn't need a teacher to come alongside. What she needed was spiritual liberation. And the girl is reached through a, literally a power encounter, right? A spiritual power encounter in the deepest recesses of her very being. And she is freed up by the power of the Spirit. She's liberated 
All that had her bound, it is gone. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It meets those real spiritual needs, and they are real spiritual needs of the people of this city. But interestingly enough, also the social needs of people in this city. What we see here is how that, that spiritual encounter has social implications because she is freed up from this spiritual power that was controlling her, and all of a sudden, her owners realize she's not going to produce what we've been hoping. The gospel addresses all the oppressive economic systems that she was bound by. Her owners just thought of her as a profit maker and not as a person. And the gospel always does that, always addresses the oppression wherever we encounter it in this world. It impacts both the spiritual focus, uh, the forces of our lives, and the, the unjust systems of the city. The salvation of Jesus, it's that big. It's not just a personal self-help type of thing. It deals with our identity. Yes, our self the psychological integration and wholeness of people. Um, just look at the deep encounter that's going on. But it also challenges all the unjust social structures with the justice of God's kingdom. I mean, look at the social change that came out through this, in this woman's life. And of course it would, right? Think of, think of Jesus. Think of how salvation comes. Jesus triumphed in his salvation through losing for giving up power. Jesus, though he was rich, gave up all his riches so that we might become wealthy. Jesus, who was lifted high as the name above every name, gave it all up to completely serve in the cross. And when the cross comes into the center of your being, you can never look on unjust systems in the same way. You can never look on the poor in the same way. You're never going to look on your money or your career in the same way. But because of the liberation of this slave girl, Paul and Silas are now rounded up because they've disturbed the economic systems of the day, and they're thrown into prison. And here we get a third vignette, a third person we're going to meet, and how the gospel interacts and impacts that person's life. It's a, it's a Roman jailer we're meeting. So who is the jailer? He's likely a retired soldier, because most so Roman soldiers were given civic jobs when they retired from service. So he's likely someone who has, has served the Roman Empire. He has been shaped by all the civic rituals and ceremonies of the empire. He, he's a loyal member of Roman society. And he knows how the system works. And as a prison guard right now, he is showing Paul and Silas how Roman power works. Paul and Silas were whipped. They were put into stocks. They were thrown into maximum security. That's how Roman power works. But while in prison, this earthquake shakes the prison, the foundations, pops open the doors, unshackles their, their bonds, and the jailer comes undone. Because he knows that if anyone escapes, it is his life on the line. He would be publicly humiliated and executed because... That's how Roman power works. That's how the system works. And so his Roman sense of honor kicks in. His sense of duty kicks in, and it, it leads him to take his own life. He's about to commit suicide, but Paul yells, don't harm yourself. And in that moment, in one more way, we see how the gospel, in a unique, beautiful way, impacts, changes someone's life. 
the jailer is facing an existential crisis. Everything he's worked for, everything he's lived for is crushing down on him right now. The whole order of things that he has upheld and lived and kept is bearing down on him and is about to crush him. And the gospel meets him in that moment of existential crisis through this beautiful upside-down pattern of God's kingdom. And you think, how so? Well, think of this. In this earthquake moment, Paul and Silas were freed up. They could have walked, right? They could have bolted, exercised their freedom for their own sake. They could have grabbed the opportunity and run. But what do they do? They stay for the sake of another. Because they know, they know how Roman power works. They know what would happen, but they stay for the sake of the jailer. Paul and Silas, their life has so been changed by Jesus Christ, leading them to, to act in radically unique ways because at the center of their being was Jesus Christ and the dynamic of Jesus of the cross, Jesus who was without stain, Jesus taking the sins of others on himself, Jesus who repays evil with good. Jesus, who prays for the forgiveness of those who are persecuting and mocking and crucifying him. That power, that dynamic so shaped those two that they would not get their freedom at the expense of the jailer's life because they know they have already gotten their freedom at the expense of Jesus' life. And so the jailer witnesses that power at work in real time in Paul and Silas he sees them, he, you know, they're sacrificing their freedom right now for him. And in that moment, in that moment, he's given a picture of how the world could be. He's given the picture of another way the world can work. A world where power is exercised to serve and to bless others. Where suffering finds hopeful meaning. A world where one will serve the good of another. He witnesses a new order of life beyond the only order he has ever known, which is one of power and violence and domination. He saw a whole new world, and in that moment, he said, I want to be part of that world. I want to live in that world. That, again, is the power of the gospel, to, to break us out of these narratives of how we think life has to be, opening up for us the beauty of God's kingdom where there is grace and mercy and dignity for all, and love free-flowing. And what's beautiful is how you see that new world. That, that jailer steps right into that new world. He lives it right away, because what he does is he invites Paul and Silas to his house. Immediately, the jailer's home becomes a place of God's reign, where prisoners are free, and where the wounds of the tortured are healed, and where a meal is set, and all join together as family. That, come on, that is the power of the gospel that brings joy to this city, wherever that gets experienced. The good news of Jesus for the city of Toronto is that Jesus Christ is intellectually credible. He makes sense of our reality, of the longings that we live with. Jesus is spiritually and socially liberating. He is psychologically integrating. He makes us whole people. Jesus Christ is existentially satisfying. He opens up for us a hope of a whole new world, a way of living, making us whole people. That is indeed possible. So do you believe this? Do you want to believe this? Near the end of this story, 
the jailer asks a vital question. What must I do to be saved? Do you know, every day, in a thousand ways, that question gets asked all over the city. Not in those words. It gets, gets voiced differently. But if you listen long enough, if you're quiet enough, you'll hear people asking that question. They'll ask it this way. They'll say something like, sometimes my heart just suffocates from loneliness. Where can I belong? Where can I be loved? Sometimes you'll hear someone saying something like, my life is so caught up, so caught up in all the demands of achieving and accomplishing. Does what I do matter at all? You might hear someone say something like, I am so tired of being angry at all that is wrong in the world. I am so sick of the suffering in the world. I cannot take it any longer. Is there any hope? Where is there justice? Is there any way to make sense of this? Or someone might confide in you and say, I've spent my whole life trying to find some authentic self, trying to prove myself to others, to my parents, to myself. There are days when I don't even know who I am anymore. That question gets asked a thousand different ways, and that answer to every one of those questions is the same. It's the same answer that the Apostle Paul gave to that jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Today, God is speaking that same word to everyone here today. No matter who you are, whether you are following Jesus or whether you have never taken that step to follow Jesus, and it is this, believe in the Lord Jesus. Christians, let's talk to you first. Can you believe deeper in Jesus? Seriously, this is what this gospel, this word is. Deepen your trust in the power of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ really is the power of God for salvation. And not just for Christians, for us to get to heaven, for the city of Toronto to heal it and give it hope. The good news is this big salvation, a personal salvation that changes the trajectory of people's lives, yes. A spiritual salvation that heals and integrates lives, a social salvation that brings justice, righting all that is wrong in the world, holding out hope for a different world. Can you believe that deeper in your life? It is good news this city needs to hear. The news of a world renewing history, changing public hope for all people. Can you let that animate and energize your faith, your life in deeper, more profound ways? Preach the gospel to your own heart. Believe in the Lord Jesus today. And for those of you here today who are not Christians, I really can't wrap this up without extending you the same invitation that Paul does to this jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And I'm not going to get all televangelists on you this morning, okay? So don't worry. But if you sense something at all in your heart opening up, if you sense something in your heart wanting to believe this is true, believe in the Lord Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus today. And maybe you say, but you don't understand. That's my problem. I don't have faith. I, I can't believe. 
But can I challenge you on that? Because here's my belief. You actually do have faith. You actually have a strong capacity to believe. Any atheist or agnostic or skeptic, it, it takes faith to doubt Christianity. All our doubts, no matter how skeptical they might be, are actually a set of alternate beliefs, alternate faith convictions about reality that we can't prove. Richard Dawkins, a very famous atheist, author of The God Delusion, in an interview said this. He says, I cannot know for certain, but I think God is very improbable, and I live my life on the assumption he is not there. Richard Dawkins is a man of faith. He's betting the farm on his faith assumption that there is no God. All of us, no matter where we are, we are people of faith. So it's sort of disingenuous to say you can't believe. We all do. But maybe the first step for you in believing in Jesus is to start doubting your doubts. Ask yourself, seriously, ask yourself, what reasons do I have for believing the things that lead me to doubt there is no God? How do I know those things to be true? It takes great faith to doubt Christianity because the Christian faith provides a rational, coherent, compelling account of reality. It makes sense of the world we inhabit. It meets the deepest needs of people in the city. And to believe doesn't mean that all your doubts and questions and fears are gone. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you need to rid yourself of every question to meet God. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust Him and begin to enjoy that amazing salvation today. Let's pray. God, thank You for the way that You love the city, for Your heart for the city, for all the different people who call this place home. God, may our heart match your heart, your, your affection, your love, your concern, your commitment to the city. And God, thank you for these three beautiful pictures that show us the power of the gospel for all people. God, we pray that you would enable us to hear the gospel in the depths of our being like that, that slave girl did, to, to, to have this power encounter with your spirit. We pray that you would help us to understand the gospel and have it transform our thinking like it was for Lydia. And we pray that you would help us to embody the gospel in our lives so we can have that utter change in character that the jailer saw. May our colleagues and coworkers and neighbors and families see that beautiful dynamic of the gospel at play in our lives. God, we ask that you would help us realize all these things in our lives and through us in the city. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.